This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, welcome back to Remaniacs. We have a slightly tired out podcast this week as we're all still recovering from our most ambitious live show yet, a two-part Christmas special at Leicester Square Theatre featuring eight of our regulars, some of whom you can hear muttering in the background there. It was the first time we'd all been on stage together and we tried to keep spirits up during a dispiriting week. Hopefully we can do a bit of that today as well. Thanks to everybody who came out. Hopefully we'll see some of you at our next show in Leicester Square, a podcalypse now, still hard to pronounce, on the 17th of December. I'm Andrew Harrison, and I'm currently on course to break the record for longest bout of jet lag in human history, having hid in America for the past week. Um, this week, I'm joined by, in sitting in a different seat for a change, Dorian Linsky, who's being a panellist instead of presenter for one week only. Hello, Dorian. How are you doing? Hello. It's weird here. <laughs> did, did you enjoy the live show? I did. I particularly enjoyed quizzes, and I think we should do all quizzes. <laughs> In fact, nothing but quizzes. Your quiz. We should just become were, a quiz show. Your quiz questions were too hard, or rather, we were too stupid to get the answers. We but they were best. they were educational and entertaining. They were edutaining. They were edutaining. Um, yeah. also, also with us, Ingrid Oliver is actor, is an actor, director, and a few weeks ago said she was this close to drawing a big cock and balls on her ballot paper instead of voting. Hello, Ingrid. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. I actually I got my uh, my postal vote through this morning because I'm going to be in South Africa. Right. Uh, for the actual election. So I've got it. So I did. You've actually got I, I have my pen. I wavered over the top of it. I'm not going to do a cock and balls, no. Um, did your hand wobble? Well, like I, a... no, but I realised what I'm voting for. I'm, I'm voting Lib Dem, but I don't mind saying that. But I, because my, I'm in a safe Labour seat, but I don't agree with the vote policy. So I'm vote, I, I'm basically voting for the nah yeah. option, uh, which feels weird. Making the best of a bad job seems yeah. to be a recurrent theme at the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, you've got to do something, I suppose, haven't you? The strange thing is, I mean, we've got a lot of topics to get through this week, but in terms of the election itself, insanely, not that much is happening. It's like simultaneous. It's like, I think Ian pointed out earlier today, that it's, it's like fourth on the fifth on the news agenda for the BBC. Is this simultaneously the most important and yet boring campaign ever? Um, well, it's not boring for me because my mother might, might win um, a seat. <laughs> not every listener's um, mum is standing uh, in the election. So, no. It? So, personally, there's quite a lot going on for me. But... Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they seem to be sort of hiding. They seem to be hiding Boris Johnson out of the way and sort of just going for damage limitation and not hoping they just get through it. So there's not a huge amount. But to be honest, we only had one two years ago. So what else yeah, are people going to say? Yeah, it's the kind of, um, it's like the walk away, nothing to see here election. Yeah. but it, Like GIF of Frank Drebin from, from uh, you know, Airplane. <laughs> well, there's a building exploding behind him. I'm, and he's like, please don't. <laughs> Or police squad, probably. Well, I, I, I'm really curious to see whether whether the turnout is going to be significantly lower than mm. it was in the last one or not, or if people aren't actually bored of it. We just feel we are, and yeah. that's what it is. It's possibly so. Uh, speaking of campaigning, this week Ian Duncan-Smith uh, was brought in for a cup of tea by two Labour mm. voters so they could keep him in there for 45 minutes so he couldn't 
go to any more houses. Like that Monty Python sketch where it's a room full of milkmen that have been kidnapped. This is a brilliant idea. Surely people up and down the country. I didn't see Not your mum, obviously. We shouldn't be trapping your mum for a cup of tea for 45 minutes. (laughs) We should be getting a local Conservative cat and just locking them in with a... With a bourbon biscuit. I'm sure, yeah. That's sort of nice. I'm sure, sure that's probably possibly illegal. But, you know. But also, surely it helps the Tories that if you don't have a conversation with Ian Duncan Smith, you're more likely right. to yeah. vote Tory. Yes. Right. So I think that backfires. Yeah, don't give him to Get out there, Ian. Work, work the doors, pound the pavement. Yeah, I'd have him, I'd just be injecting amphetamines into his eyeballs and having him out there 24 <laughs> 7, getting on everyone's nerves. There's an image. Turning, turning the seat red. There's you an dived image. into the violent imagery quite quickly this week. Oh, it took you a full 50 minutes last week. That is the voice of Ian Dunce, editor of politics.co.uk, author of How to Be a Liberal. You can order it now in time to give your loved ones a card for Christmas, <laughs> saying they're not going to get it until May 2020 because <laughs> they haven't finished it yet. Like a Star Wars toy. Like yeah. a Star Wars toy, a voucher for a plastic Boba Fett. You enjoyed the uh, live show, didn't you, Ian? I did, I did indeed. Yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was tremendous good fun. Uh, what did you make of uh, Jeremy Corbyn's new jacket this week with the little kind of the embroidery on the inside that said, for the many, not the few, in piping? <laughs> I don't know. You know what's... I mean, obviously, all of his fashion taste is fucking appalling, but uh, at least reminiscent of his personality. Um, the phrase is starting to fucking bother me. Like, I, th- it's quite an annoying, because I know what you're going for. You know, the few are supposed to be the oligarch, because apparently the only people that fucking exist. He literally said, yes. it's a country of billionaires I and the poor. And you're like, I feel that, that that's an oversimplified There are no. that many billionaires. Yeah, I cannot yeah, understand yeah. why that was not jumped on by literally everybody, because that is a window into a cartoonish mindset, a caricature of Britain, the idea that there's nobody here but billionaires and the very poor. Mm. I mean, I know some people are a bit hard up, but I really don't know anybody in those classes and I don't think anybody else does either. How many billionaires are there in this country? I think he's thinking of that film Snowpiercer. Yeah? <laughs> Where there's like a train and it's basically the poor down one end and the billionaires down the other. What's amazing is like even like the like nineteen seventeen like Soviet propaganda was more nuanced than that. It would have layers of society. <laughs> at least they had, like, at least they had the kulaks. The Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It was a more nuanced vision. So none of that was great. But also, like, just as a phrase, the many, not the few. Like, my instinct is like, well, I quite want to defend the few. I mean, I don't particularly feel the need to defend billionaires. But whenever it's like, here's a majority and here's a minority and we're going to stack them against each other, yeah. that kind of sums up to me that kind of just emotional feeling of discomfort that I have with his entire bullshit. But it's that sort of... It's also increases the notion of the dialogue of the deaf where you've just got one bunch of people shouting for the many not the few and another bunch of people shouting get Brexit done and in the middle everybody else going please be quiet you know please just stop shouting your, your <laughs> well, slogans. most slogans are like I mean at least we remember those where there's loads of political slogans like which you can't even remember like American presidential sort of campaigns where it's all kind of like forward not backward <laughs> up not down yeah into the future right Write a happy time tomorrow. Was it, like, <laughs> Ian, Ian might know this. Was it Stanley Baldwin whose election slogan was tranquility? <laughs> tranquility. Oh, God, I like that. I, I, I'd vote I for mean, that. if they brought it out now, I, I would, would take it. I, I'd like, is it an election slogan or is it a kind of like mind drug? Either way. It's, it's an app. It's an app. Tranquility. <laughs> yeah, it play, plays uh, Plinky Plonky. It's just Stanley Baldwin murmuring in your ear. Stanley Baldwin v2.0. <laughs> anyway, Ian's dying there. Um, this I'm a bit week, ill. Can, they'll, be, they'll be kind of general dreadful noises coming from my face throughout yes. the next hour so I apologise for those in the bar. pray for Ian listeners and there'll uh, also be some coughing <laughs> there you go I was thinking Bastard. surely he set that up someone's got to <laughs> kick it in yes 
thwark. Anyway, this week we're going to look at uh, Boris Johnson's blundering from the politicisation of that horrible terrorist attack on London Bridge to his sudden lofty promises about state aid and immigration, as well as a new twist on Labour's revelations about the NHS and Trump's trade deal. That's all after a few reminders from Ingrid. Let's make this quick. You have just one day to complete your Christmas shopping at the snow-covered Romaniacs Christmas Market. Our suppliers have been swamped with demand because of Black Friday, so in order for them to guarantee delivery in time for Christmas, they've told us all orders need to be in by the end of Friday, the 6th of December. We'll be closing the market at the end of Friday, so get your skates on and buy Auntie Karen the I Heart Brussels mug that you absolutely know she wants, so that she can toast Her Majesty the Queen properly on Christmas Day. Find it all at RomaniacsMerch.com. And in Patreon news, we are about to launch our first live show of 2020. And, drumroll, it's not in London. Yes, in or out, win or lose, the Romaniacs Roadshow continues for the next stage of the Brexit Infinity War. Search Romaniacs Patreon to sign up and be the first to discover exactly where that will be. Plus, you'll get our lovely merchandise and all our other benefits. We are, as ever, massively grateful for your support. Can I just say that the, the, the Adam Bolton interview with the acting head of UKIP, who I can't remember her name. Mm-hmm. Pam Mountain. No, Pam Mountain. Ma- Mountain. Pam Mountain. She really, she was Auntie Karen. <laughs> she was just acting like she was just like bullshitting over Christmas dinner. And Adam Bolton was the person that everybody wishes they were. Just going, but the, the figures don't support that at all. So how many, how many immigrants are there? Yeah. Come on, Auntie Karen, how many immigrants yeah, are there? Are there's there? millions so of them in the post office. No, stop asking me yeah. questions. Pull a, pull a cracker, Adam Bolton, and stop being so bloody miserable. Be Christmassy. Anyway, speaking of Christmassy, election stuff first. We discovered that there's nothing Boris Johnson won't slap a rosette on. Following the horrific terror attack at a prisoner rehabilitation conference in London Bridge, Johnson blamed Labour for the early release of the attacker. Is anybody going to tell him who's been in government for the last nine years? Johnson also published a column in the Mail promising that he will keep Britain safe from terror if he's given a majority. Ian, it's not just Johnson making hay from this. Uh, Because of the parallels with the attack on London Bridge two years ago, the false flag brigade are out as well. Is it inevitable that anything that's either a terror attack or, or possibly could be construed as a terror, as that lone wolf type thing, is going to be just snapped up by these extremes to serve a purpose? Like everything at the moment is going to be met by a low-level sense of conspiracy theory. So there's always going to be a bunch of people online they are going to talk about anything in terms of conspiracy theory, including a lot of people that I'm usually quite sympathetic to. And we've spoken before about the way that dead cat... I mean, dead, dead cat as a phrase is basically a sort of a kind of like mainstream vanilla liberals conspiracy theory that just emerges all the time mm. just like oh this is just to distract us from something else and you just think well no actually sometimes things are just happening as people fuck up and the the bleaker end of this is the false flag stuff which which sometimes in the states with school shootings reaches a really monstrous grim agenda yeah. yeah um and so you're obviously going to see that and the rest of what we're seeing the political response is basically what happens when there is absolutely no motivation, no incentive for politicians to behave in a moral way and to abide by basic social norms of not trying to politicise and cynically use the deaths of innocent people for their own aims. So, you know, we are in the worst of all possible worlds right now and the response to this event pretty much confirms it. It's interesting, isn't it, that responses in one direction are immediately greeted with too soon, too soon. Particularly you think about, uh, you know, gun atrocities in America and the minute anybody starts talking about gun control immediately it's too soon to talk about it we should be having a decent period of reflection mm-hmm. after this tragedy responses in another direction is perfectly legitimate this is a political issue that needs to be dealt with such as uh, why have we released 
terrorists all over Britain, running riots all over Britain. It is definitely a double standard operating, isn't it? And if, if, if there was a really clear, compelling case for the reasons behind something, then you might be in a different situation. For instance, if someone had used a gun that people have just had a conversation about whether it should be banned or not, and it hadn't been, and then it had been used, you would obviously have a clear case to have that conversation. In this case, automatic um, release it's, was supported by Labour and the Conservatives at various times because it allowed them to pretend that they were going to have a really tough on crime policy while at the same time dealing with the fact that they didn't have capacity in prisons to deal with the kind of populations that that would entail. So they both supported it. So for him to come out and start gibbering on about it is obviously a party political attempt. It doesn't, you know, the, it doesn't bear comparison with the kind of response that you would find in the US because it is obviously such a completely different scenario and one which is complex and nuanced, which he had no interest in reflecting whatsoever. Yeah, it's so weird, isn't it, that Jeremy Corbyn blamed the Iraq War, which was a Labour thing. It's weird. It was like an own goal. Not, not real Labour, though. Not real Labour. Nobody's funny. Tory it's like Labour. Tory media goes re- Labour, and the Labour go, "Yes, it's Labour." <laughs> it's like, really? Way. That's not what, <laughs> are, you what yeah. are you doing? Yeah, it's well, it's just that kind of doctrinaire response, you know, that just sort of reaches back to blowback, and basically anything that happens uh, in the West that's bad is 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 the West's fault. Mm. Now, obviously, there is argue. You know, there are definitely some arguments about you know the effect that these conflicts have had on, on sort of feeding terrorism. There's also uh, a great deal of evidence, including 9/11, um, of terrorism existing before these wars, and it just seemed like the wrong. There is an argument to be had there, but it just seemed like such the wrong note to strike, and it was. I felt maybe that it was an opportunity after the shamelessness of Johnson's intervention. Uh, to take slightly higher ground and not just go, well, this confirms the thing that mm-hmm. I've been saying for years. You know, and it wouldn't have been that hard because because Johnson's was so shameless. Um, you know, and the and the kind of the finger pointing and the you know lock them up and throw away the key kind of stuff. Mm. And I just felt, oh come on, man, you could have you could have sort of risen above. But, uh, you know, if the Prime Minister introduces it as a political debating point, surely the job of the opposition is to debate that point. You know, you, it's the Prime Minister who's opened the bidding, as it were, and you, you're kind of duty-bound to de- to deal with it in its own terms. But not than... by blaming the previous no, of course Labour not. government. Yeah, like, if that's... you want to push back at the Tories and what the claims they're making about prison, you know, justice policy, great. Mm. But that what, his exactly, response—he yeah. was not responding to Johnson no, with, with that. That's it. But that, that, that's exactly my point. It, it, it would have been legitimate of him to say, "Well, actually, no. Here's figures. Here's his policy failures." Um, but it, but the, the kind of reaching for the security blanket of basically it's Tony Blair's fault is kind of shows the sort of mm. you know the poverty and the lack of ability to react on 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 your feet. That's kind of making this election campaign so dismal. Ingrid David Merritt, the, the father of one of the victims said his son wanted a world where we don't slash prison budgets, where we focus on rehabilitation, not revenge. And the Have I Got News For You Twitter account of all people pointed out that uh, there's no money to rehabilitate terrorists, says government that spent £100 million advertising a Brexit that didn't happen. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's sort of, sort of so tragically ironic that, that his son got killed and his son was fighting for prison reform. Mm. And now we're having a debate about how that shouldn't be, you know, immediately Johnson says the opposite of what that yeah. chap, you know, the Jack Merritt stood for. But I mean, it's it's really tricky because I think, <laughs> I think, I think what the Conservatives seem to be learning the hard way, they won't learn, but is that, oh, if you cut funding for things, bad shit happens. Mm. Um, and they have cut 
so much out of the probation service and the, just the legal just the legal system in general people yeah. are on their knees i think and it's sort of, everything's coming in ways i was listening to a report about the grenfell tower and how that sort of happened as a direct consequence of of cor- of corner cutting because it's always down to the money is the is the bottom line who can do it the cheapest how can we do it the cheapest well, that's what we'll go for regardless of the cost to the public in terms of of the sa- safety of the public um so it seems it's interesting isn't it if this if this causes them to invest more in the legal system, but that's I don't think that's what they're proposing. They're just saying uh, longer sentences, but that's not the answer to anything. As any, I think probably self-respecting. Uh, well, no, and they'll be, they'll be slapping them on people who aren't going to do this. The problem is that when you have a kind of one one-off event, it's like the exact, you know, if you could, could you know, time travel back, you know, the exact circumstances which led this guy to commit another terrorist attack. Um, that doesn't necessarily follow, therefore, that there should be a vast swathe of people that you then, that you then, kind of lock up. There's not, there's not really, there's not a logical thing, is it? Or no. even, you know, and who knows if more money had been spent on rehabilitation, would that have made a difference? I, you know, I, I don't you, know, but you it definitely instantly money moves away from to that. To monitor people, I mean, yeah, and I agree. And and, fun, and Islamic fund or any kind of terrorism is obviously a complete. I think it's a slightly separate issue from the normal prison service with, yeah, you know. Is about ideology, which is obviously a slightly different area, but there's just not enough money to address that, probably, I imagine. I think it's when you cut. This is the problem that we have with the prison services. When you cut, you can't deliver any of the services. So, for instance, when you cut prison guards, mm. you don't have the capacity there to take the prisoner from their cell to the room where you are then doing whatever it is that you want for rehabilitation, whether it's retraining or reskilling or something for mm. jobs or trying to reestablish family contact trying to improve literacy rates or trying to deal with more ideological issues you just can't you literally can't physically take them from one place to another so as soon as they started cutting the prison budget doing austerity prisoners spent 23 hours a day in their rooms and that was what happened they just spent the entire time in their cell so we've let them kind of almost whatever the crime is what we lose is we have these guys for a moment in time it's like what do we do with them during that time and on that this country has just failed over and over again. And the reason it fails is because the right-wing press with the fire and brimstone, tough-on-crime bullshit Mm. never gives a shit about that. It just acts as if the number, that number of years that are given a point of sentence is this magic wand that will suddenly make crime disappear. Yeah, I mean, it's not... not that I've ever sort of considered murdering anybody, but I've never particularly made the calculation of, well, if I get caught, <laughs> will I do six years or will I do eight? Yeah. Yes, mm, eight years, not really worth it. Six years, yeah, I'm going to murder them, actually. That's going to be, <laughs> seems, seems like a good deal on the old crime there's, front. There's something very specific about the, the kind of jihadi mindset, and obviously some of them are rehabilitated and some of them very much yeah. re- repent. But there is obviously a kind of, there is a, re- a religious fanaticism driving them. So the idea that this would then drive a kind of more a harsher more sort of inhumane sentencing regime for people who are not like that Hmm. it's a very specific crime people who commit most crimes even terrible crimes are not driven by that sense of mission Hmm. and therefore is likely to do it again and it's it's just it's just so sort of it's so i mean that's why it's always awful when basically one event with very particular kind of constellation of of causes becomes a justification yeah. For unrelated things. You know, if it's related, for example, gun policy and mass shootings are very much related. But this just seems like it's being used as an excuse to do a lot of stuff that actually has, has doesn't have that much to do. And do you know what's annoys me about what inevitably, and it's always the same, is that the knee-jerk reaction. It's like, I this is what I now think. Boris Johnson, I've always thought this, this is what we're going to do. Without any actual thought 
or consultation or looking at details or just getting a new, just getting a broader mm. view. Because he's not a details, I mean, he's the least details orientated person I've ever seen in that in that position. I feel like there was some footage of him today at NATO, and it's always adults in the room talking to him and him sort of nodding. He's never <laughs> holding court. It's not sort of heads of states sort of listening to him, going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, absolutely." <laughs> he's no Merkel, but we knew that already. Um, but yes, did anybody put themselves through the Mar interview with oh, Johnson? Yeah. yeah, it was pretty unedifying. I, I, I mm. mean, I was quite impressed by. Mars attempt to tough guy it up with this kind of relentlessness but it seemed to be I think you talked about this on the live show didn't you Ian, about how you know Mars tactic is to have say eight or nine points that he's trying to get a kind of granular kind of uh, concession on but not go for the big picture and what came across to me on the big picture was simply that you know surprise surprise Boris Johnson is a blustering liar who doesn't listen to anything that's being said to him and it was immensely kind of depressing. Which was he wasn't asking him. What was frustrating about it is he wasn't actually asking him that many questions. The only thing the thing he kept on saying to him over and over again was, "You've been in power for ten years," hmm. which is a completely fair response to what he was saying. But it's not actually a question, so you can kind of wriggle your way around that pretty easily because it's just a man saying the same sentence at you over and over again. Hmm. He wasn't ever hooked down on anything. I found I, I got a, it really was fucking dreadful. I mean, it was the kind of thing where afterwards you just feel like I, I feel like my brain is. Like physically smaller than it was going into this thing. Yeah, it's kind of shining through actually at the moment, and you really have. Uh, <laughs> it seems to have, uh, <laughs> the BBC, you're not your own self. I mean, I, talk, I, talk, I do try and give the BBC the benefit of the doubt, but their failure to nail down an Andrew Neil interview, you know, is as really looks really bad. And it's mm. like it's all right, we've got Andrew Marr, and it's like, well, the one thing that maybe could save that would be if Andrew Marr watched an Andrew Neil interview and went. Oh, right. So you ask questions and then you don't let them off the hook. Mm. Like, maybe I should try that. And Andrew Marr just did what Andrew Marr always does. Meanwhile, this week's big reveal from Labour was leaked documents which they say prove the NHS is on the table in trade talks with the US, even though Donald Trump says he doesn't want it even on a silver salver. Um, the Guardian had an intriguing report that the papers made their way into the public domain online using what they called Russian methods. Researchers uncovered, that although they can't be sure of this, there were many commonalities between the way the papers released and methods of a Russian hacker group called Secondary Infection. Three more from them later. Dmitry Peskov, Russian <laughs> Putin's media man, who probably couldn't look any more like an extra from a Cold War film if he tried, says that we in Britain have a fetish for blaming Russia to distract from our own problems. Ingrid, does the evil meddling Russian communist have a point there? Are we, unfair, <laughs> are we unfairly blaming the meddling Russians? Well, I mean, is this unfair? Probably not, no. I mean, yes, in, in that sense that, like with all things... You shoot down one play. Poison. <laughs> 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 oh, that's not even funny, actually. Um, I, yeah, it's that thing of, it, you know... Because some of the things are true most of the time, doesn't mean all of the things are true all of the time about Russia, but but people then will automatically jump to that conclusion, uh, rightly or wrongly. It probably it probably help, they, pro they probably love it. They love it because it makes us it makes them seem all powerful. It does make you wonder though if if, uh, if the Russians are fully Wiki, WikiLeaks singles, why did they choose NHS documents as the only ones that they leaked? Surely there must be other choice stuff around there. I'm sure they do leak other stuff as well, obviously. I imagine, but 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 you well, that thing isn't it? You always go, well, who 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 leaked it? Who what do they stand to gain from it? It's um, the tinfoil hat, qui bono. 
who benefits, which always makes me think that so many things happen in the world that benefit nobody at all. Mm. That's sort of like seeing a pattern of, you know, black gloved hand moves lever on, on the machine and pop, here comes an email into your inbox. But the Russian argument, the Russian technique is essentially, it's not really about who it benefits, like it, Chaos and sort of dissent yeah. Yeah. benefits them. So even the idea sometimes that the Russians have particularly favoured candidates. I mean, sometimes, you know, they generally favour the candidates who are just going to, like, fuck things up. Mm. But that might be someone on the right. It might be someone on the left. It, it's sort of like the way, the the kind of the, the modern Russian way of doing things and spreading kind of sort of discord and, and, and paranoia and stuff. It, it isn't really that old mod- model mm. of... You're doing it. You've got a cunning plan which is intended to achieve the following aim. And if there is, Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Corbyn for Prime Minister of Great Britain suggests that Putin's already achieved whatever aim he needed to in the first place. Either of those options, I'm sure, would be perfectly fine. That's the line, isn't it? The the contemporary Manchurian candidate does not know he's the Manchurian candidate. He thinks he's like a regular guy doing the best for Britain stroke himself. Uh, Either Corbyn or, or Brexit. Yeah, you could you can read as basically mm. a, as sort of helping Russia in some way. It doesn't mean obviously that anybody's collaborating, you know, with them or whatever. Wasn't it? Wasn't it the Telegraph that leaked, leaked the papers originally? Anyway, back in wasn't it back in July? According to Scram News, yeah, the, this left wing news site um, that they pub- they started going through them in July and are now running a campaign going. Look at these dastardly Russian papers that Labour are using for this. But it does look like they started. Publishing a story on it in July, right? So, but the Telegraph didn't. I mean, there was a Telegraph really picked know. up. We don't know where that came from. But we don't also don't know that it's really. We don't know that it's right. What they said was that the methodology yeah. of how it was published, which is using Reddit, using three German language newspapers, and and one accounts. anonymous Twitter account. Yeah, yeah, it was the way. And, and so it's like fine. I mean, that seems perfectly convincing, but it doesn't. It's not exactly like definitive. But say it is say it was the Russians, but it was it was available online. As opposed to kind of like handed to, mm. you know, somebody on a park bench, kind of labour official <laughs> yeah. on a, on a, on the, a park the bench. The red crow barks at midnight. This <laughs> image is document. Do not read. I am not here. Nice yeah. day for walk in park. Yeah. <laughs> um, red fox. Quite <laughs> good at many not few. But, <laughs> but provided there wasn't actually any sort of complicity, which I understand that there wasn't. It's like I, I don't really think this discredits. As long as the documents are genuine, right? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. sort of not anybody's fault if those things have been made leaked and are available mm-hmm. online. So when when um, Donald Trump says he doesn't want the NHS, even if it's offered to him on a silver salver, a do we believe him? I mean, his famous lack of consistency means that almost no statement can be. No, it's definitely not. They definitely, they definitely, definitely are going to have stuff to say about drug prices and about nice. I mean, it's just hmm. there's no point. They, they definitely will. So the the Tory benchmark for their own accuracy was to say it won't be on the table, which is to suggest it won't be part of talk. It's that bloody table again. The fucking table, man. It's everywhere. So like, obviously that is false. The other thing is, will you back down on elements of NHS, you know, drug pricing and nice in particular? My Guess would be on that, yes, unless they feel that the political damage would be so, so strong that it scares them off. But that's, you know, that basically puts you in a position of uncertainty as to what will the Tories do once they're in negotiation, rather than will they allow it to be part of negotiation in the first place. I find that I find that vaguely insulting. The way he said it, he was almost like, I wouldn't touch your dirty NHS with a barge pole. It was really like, 
I suddenly was like, oh, why, what's wrong with our NHS? Why don't you want to buy it? Um, but no, <laughs> well, but that's what he wants you to say. No, no, that's what exactly. How yeah. dare He's you, sir? Maybe it needs Offer to... us a decent price. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe what it needs is a hot injection of private capital <laughs> from, you know, Raytheon Defence Dynamics. I don't know. Something like that. Wow. Could be the way of thinking. Okay, away from the NHS, the week's other major announcements came from the queen of the Disney villainess smirk, Pretty Patel, who re-announced the Australian points-based system of immigration. Yes, that one again, to end free movement once and for all after Brexit. Although, as Tom Brooks noted in The Independent a few weeks ago, not only do we already have a points-based immigration system for non-EU migrants, but it's actually based on Australia. So we kind of already have an Australian points-based. You get the picture. Dastardly Europeans will also require an Esther-style visa like we need when we go to America. Ingrid, is Pretty Patel right in at least one sense that the border will become more secure because it'll be so quiet because so many people won't want to come anymore <laughs> yeah, I, because they've I mean, like, pre- <laughs> show me your papers type of thing. Yeah, I do wonder about that. I've, I worry about that anyway because I, I know I know lots of people uh, who won't go to America because of Trump. They've said not going until he's out of power. And I can't help feeling... That... One thing you do notice, by the way, when you go through Customs America, that there are very few portraits of Trump up at immigration. Mm. There used to be Obama, wherever you went. Really? And there was George W. Bush as well. Whenever you went in, and Clinton, obviously, there are no Trump portraits there. It's like That's interesting. deep state on the you know, immigration thing. Um, I mean, yeah, I I, I worry. I, I sort of think, why would you come here at this, at this point in time if you were a sort of talented uh, European or otherwise? Uh, why would you? Mm. I wouldn't. They're not okay. going to. Yeah. No. The thing is, I'm 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 going to disagree with business organisations in a later topic, but I will agree with them now. Yes, because I'm unpredictable like that. Hmm. Um, you know, and I think it was the, the CBI uh, who who pointed out the kind of the problem with this brightest and the best cliche, which is completely unrelated to actually how economies, you know, use. Use immigrants. Yeah, it's not unipolar, is it? It's not like there's a stack of people with the bright and the it's best not, at the top and the rubbish ones at the bottom. It's not always the best. It's not just like, come in, only only people who want to work on their PhDs. Yeah. It's like, you know, a huge amount of kind of immigrant labor. It's, it's kind of spread out across, I mean, all the way across the economy. Numerous different disciplines. I think, didn't somebody say, we may have mentioned this on the podcast before, somebody said, what you've got to remember is that the, the, the brightest are not always the best. And sometimes the best are not the brightest. You don't need to be highly qualified in order to be of enormous value to the economy. And often, hugely qualified and financially powerful people are quite actually deleterious to the economy. They're not actually very good to have. In terms, of, in terms of the Australian-based point system and the fact that we haven't got it and the, and the EU is the only thing that's stopping us from controlling our own borders nonsense, my brother married um, an Ecuadorian uh, woman and she's an, an engineer, she's a mechanical engineer. Uh, they had three children together and they're married and she had to wait, I think, three months. And sort of in her, she, she, My brother had to move here first and then she was with three kids in a hotel room for like, like a travel lodge in East Germany for three months because they wouldn't process her visa. And she's a fucking mechanical engineer and is married to a Brit and has three children. And they, it was such a tortuous process. So the idea that we're sort of, at the moment, just letting floods of people in mm-hmm. and we can't control our, our system is, is utter nonsense. But I suppose going back to the prisons, post-London Bridge prisons uh, idea was, it, it's the sort of unnecessary cruelty, which is kind of like a strand that runs through much of, much of Tory policy is that they talk about immigrants, they're just people that you that you use. And at the moment, they're all having a, an easy time of it, and we need to make things sort of harder and harder and force more and more people out, and quite apart from the kind of the effects of the economy of suddenly removing a whole kind of pool of, um, of labour, 
it's just that kind of all you need to do is read some of the personal stories yeah and and you just think well why would you cause yourself economic damage just in in order to hurt people but i think this is the mistake people on our side make all the time we look at it and go this is so awful how is this not causing them damage why is this not making them more unpopular and the sad truth is that it's a large part of the conservative support now for which that is a feature not a bug they're in it for the sense that in some ill-defined way they themselves are being revenged upon the people that mm. have made their lives not quite what they want it to be. And I did see a very telling little clip. Again, it's Trump, it's not Britain. But there were it was one of these kind of uh, Trump supporters safaris. I think the New York Times had it. And it was a woman in uh, one of the classic Trump voting states saying she'd voted Trump and she was very unhappy with him. And the reporter said, why is that? And she said, he's not hurting the right people. <laughs> and the idea that the job of the president is to hurt people the idea that the job of government is to find somebody, isolate a group, and make life difficult for them seems to have been completely internalised by a large minority of electorates across the Western world. That's the first thing they said to Boris Johnson when he got off a bus. It was in Salisbury yesterday. And he gets off and it's like he actually he's found a town where people like him. And the first thing that someone said to him was, sock it to him. Yeah. And that cruiser thing is the first thing they wanted to say was, her, I mean, fuck knows who they are, whether it's Parliament or Remainers Remain in general or immigrant or whatever the fuck. But it was basically the first thing that they required of him was to punish the people they didn't like. Yeah, it's politics of sport. It's like my team is going to fuck mm. your team up. We're not, it's not enough that we win; you must also lose. But also, I think it answers a kind of an emotional need that in a in a kind of confusing world, in a in a world that is in a lot of ways flattened. You know, you haven't got your reliable hierarchies. You don't really know where you stand. What gives you certainty is they're wrong and Pretty Patel is going to make them miserable. Therefore, I like Pretty Patel. She's grinning while she does something well, to nasty. Be, I mean, but to be honest, there's also the story of fascism. Yeah. And the story of kind of, you know, po wow. nativism, populism, austerityism going back. I mean, that's always the way, isn't it? It's just like yeah, it's yeah. the story and of kind of like white supremacy. America, it's just like we, also, need, we need to stick it to some other people so we can feel better, even if our lives haven't materially improved one jot at least we can look down on them. And that was the problem in like sort of civil rights movement when it started kind of like elevating people of colour, kind of struggling white people were just like, well, fucking hell, that's just, this, was the, down on this was the only thing we had was being mm. able to look down on them. And so there is an element of it on the left as well. I mean, we're just talking about the many, not the few. There's a kind of, you may argue that there's a, you know more of a kind of a, of a just approach to, um, you know, to distribution in society. But a lot of... The kind of energy comes from there's a group out there that are getting away with it, and I want to punish them. Stuff, I mean, not just an element of it. I think, I mean, if you look at Corbyn, they're in exactly the same tribal place, and you really don't know what you've got till it's gone, do you? In that, like, when I think of old prime ministers, and it, it might not have been real, but that thing that they felt that they had to present themselves as being there for the whole of the country, as representing the whole of the country, even though they, of course, had their own electoral calculus underneath it all, just that fiction, that theatre is healthy mm. in the meantime, whereas it actually feels quite poisonous to think that someone's in Downing Street with the intent to both act and to show that they're acting in a way that is done for their tribe and to attack another. Well, that was that show, though, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah I mean, she was very, very enough, clear. That, I mean, she, enough, she was yeah. very clear. There were whole yeah, yeah. swathes of the country that she just didn't give a shit No, that's about. quite right. She was yeah. a class warrior. Yeah. But, I, I, mean, I guess it's just in my life. I mean, I remember her going, but I don't... But, you know, from then on, you didn't really see much of that and actually even before her where there was consensus between Labour and the Conservatives on sort of Keynesian policy there was actually so much consensus that really there was a sense that there was a there was a national plan there she was 
basically an aberration, I would say, until now. Well, I keep being told by, um, you know, friends who are kind of soft Tories and, and, uh, and even some cases quite hard Tories that you don't need to stop worrying, Andrew, stop worrying about Boris Johnson. He's a one-nation Conservative, really. Well, fuck he's saying say it he one more fucking to... time. Yeah. Mm. He's, he's a one-man he... Conservative. Yeah, he's barely a man. <laughs> he's, he's just saying what he needs to say in order to get elected and then you're going to see, look at how he governed London. He was a liberal one-nation Conservative. What, with his fucking Roritanian like, Lego projects across the Thames? And his bullshit buses and his stupid, you know, cable car things. I mean, this is a that you're absolutely right. That was a one man Tory. But, but I've seen I've seen arguments about what Johnson government might do, and you've got some people accusing others of being alarmist, and others accusing the others of being complacent. Because when you're dealing with somebody with no ideological consistency or real beliefs. It, you're basically trying to predict, not like you have someone like Thatcher, you just go, well, this is what Thatcher wants. Mm-hmm. With Johnson, you're just like, well, it depends which way the tide is is, is going. So, I can't, but your friends could be right, is the truth of it. My mother seems to agree mm. with your friends. Uh, she doesn't, my mother is not a hardline Tory. She's a soft, I mean, she's, you know, so, I mean, I've joked about it on the podcast, but she's she's fundamentally a decent, she's she's... Her background is social enterprise. She voted to remain. She's not a sort of hardcore Tory. Mm. Um, and she said that she any policies that were like that, she wouldn't vote for um, if she were to win. And I think with, I don't know, it's really interesting. Again, because I'm an actor, I, I always look for the like, what is the character? What is the motivation here? <laughs> um, and, I, and I saw there was some footage online of um, uh, Boris either yesterday or this morning at the NATO summit with, with, with Trudeau, Macron, Princess Anne, weirdly, and someone else, another one. The and they were all laughing about... Mm. Uh, well, they were essentially slagging off Donald Trump. And, you know, they, they were all mites, so they didn't quite realise. And he was part of them, going, mm, I can't bloody believe it. And, and they were all sort of laughing about him. And he sort of seemed quite happy <laughs> in this group. And I don't think the idea of him becoming sort of ideologue, right-wing ideologue that alienates us from the rest of the world, I don't know but, that I But I think if you, if you were to pick him up and place him in a different group... In a group of right-wing ideologues, yeah, he'd be yeah. saying, yeah, "Yeah, burn down the hospitals." But you know, he'd be absolutely. But do you think, do you I think, think he's. I think he's. The, I think the reason it's so hard to get a grip on Johnson and Trump is that they are hollow men. They don't want anything other than the big chair. And, you, know, you say, like, looking forward to what Tory policies might be when they're in government. My fear is that it's just a void. I, I agree. I don't. I don't equate Boris and and Trump. I don't think they're the same person. I think no, they're not the same person. But I think Trump is a more ultimate extreme human abyss whereas johnson is just a, a liar and a charlatan but do you do you think <laughs> but they're a, on the continuum but do you think in a way this this uh, this has just occurred to me um there's a lot of comparing uh corbyn's uh you know alleged anti-semitic remarks or problematic remarks on that front um with johnson's uh sort of racist i mean not just racist i mean offensive remarks about basically everybody and perhaps the one of the differences why one of them seems to land and the other doesn't is that people think that Corbyn really believes all that stuff. Like if Corbyn is on video saying mm-hmm. something five years ago, they think, yeah, no, that's that's exactly what he thinks about Israel. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're just seeing like loads of old Spectator and Telegraph columns churned up where he's using this kind of like comic hyperbole to be horrible about everyone, I do wonder whether some people just go... Well, it was a great it's just moment. Boris being Boris. They don't actually believe that this reveals some sort of deep-seated hatred of particular social groups. They just think... Oh, he doesn't really believe any of it, and therefore it hurts him less because he's hollow. Was it on the Mar interview where he said, uh, "Mark, I think Mark quoted something back to him, and he just said, oh, if you're going to keep pulling up things that I wrote about people, I mean, where's that going to take us? What, are you going to keep pulling up your opinions that you advanced for money, supposedly <laughs> believe in? Well, there was an interesting little bit on one of Channel 4's Meet the Voters routines. I think it was 
yesterday, Tuesday, where um, a guy goes, well, Boris, he's lying all the time, isn't he? He just lies. And, um, you know, he just says what he likes. And that's why I believe him and I trust him. And I thought, where do you go with that? Mm. You know, I believe this guy because he lies to me. Where do you go? I, I, yeah, I thought, didn't he say... Didn't he say uh, he says the truth? Oh, didn't he say he yeah, says... Yeah, that's it, yeah. No, I think he said, no, he speaks the truth. That, you know, sometimes people don't want to hear it, but that's why I like him. So he's... he No, he thinks... So there was a lady in there who said he lied to the Queen, so what else could he possibly do? And then this other guy was like, no, I think he speaks the truth. And that's when I put my head in my hands. But that, like, guy, oh my God. that guy did precede it by saying, oh, he tells lies all the time, and but he speaks the truth. And as if, and I think that's a, that's to do with the definition of what the truth is. And for a lot of people, the truth is now what you wish it was. rather but the, than what But the connection be... to Trumpism is actually the truth is what is offensive. The truth is yeah. what annoys the people who annoy you. And so if someone's just sort of like saying horrible things about, you know, single mothers or Muslims or whatever, you know, and it certainly was the case of Trump is people just go, well, he's, he's telling the truth. And people who pretend that they don't hate Muslims and single mothers are sort of lying <laughs> because because we know that everybody does. You know, that that is that, <laughs> it's that whole kind of problem where basically anybody who, who kind of is not bigoted is somehow being politically correct and therefore being insincere. And yeah. anybody who's just hateful, it's just like, it's what we're all thinking. Yeah. That's going to be the, I mean, look, if, if he manages to get a majority, I think that's going to be one of the things that really smarts is that there's a vindication, not for any of the politics, not even for the comments that he's made, for the type of personality that he is. Hmm. You've done this. Th there is no question. I mean, pretty much everyone accepts, you know, this guy is a liar. He can see that the arrogance, the self-interest, that he won't answer questions, the, the running away from any kind of scrutiny, the sort of just general disdain towards all of the basic structures and the culture in which we operate. And it'll be vindicated. And it sort of the, the shade of that is how it felt when Donald Trump won in the US, where the first thing that for most of my American friends was a sense of like, they constantly used the word fear in those first few days. More severe because they're because the thing that they fixated on was like the aggression, you yeah. know, and I mean especially like the sexual aggression around him, and it was just like oh, so that's okay. so basically yeah. what we're seeing as a culture is that's okay yeah. now. Yeah. And now this is not that bad, but it is the same process that if there if there is a mandate for it, then it is a cultural moment where you're saying we do not think that these things are you know off 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 the book. I do think it's interesting that he's chosen to apparently distance himself from Trump in this visit. Mm. Uh, he's deliberately not wanted to be seen sort of having in-depth conversations with him and that does feel slightly different the thing is because after you know everyone, when Trump won everyone's like oh maybe he won't be as bad when he's in power checks and balances checks and balances and then obviously that turned out to be a total bag of that shit that lasted about a minute didn't it yeah. so, so I can't with 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 with, <coughs> uh, with Johnson because we are possibly heading probably heading for a majority I have to believe he won't be as bad it's almost like I, I, I am so hoping with everything that it's not going to go that way and that we'll be pleasantly surprised because fucking hell, we need something positive after <laughs> after the last three years. But yeah, I mean, I don't hold out much hope, but I've got to believe that there's room for... Um... I think the saving grace, the thing that makes Johnson not Trump is that um, Trump is like the Tasmanian devil. He can't control himself. He is. He has no interest in what happened five minutes ago. He's just interested in causing chaos wherever he can. Johnson is fundamentally lazy. Yeah. He just doesn't really want to do anything. He just wants to go around shagging women at random and then denying it. He has no policy ideas. He won't he's, he's has he ever tried hard at anything he's ever done. And I think that's a saving grace. I think he just got I've won now and he'll sit on the big chair for 5 years not really doing anything. We'll probably get some hideous follies built up and down the country, a stupid bridge from one place to another. Maybe he'll change the shape of the buses. I, 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 I wish this was true. 
I do not see it because I just see this. There is a wing of the party and an intellectual tradition to that wing mm. that he has linked into hard. He's linked into it and it's there on the European Court Convention of Human Rights. It's certainly there on judicial review and it's there on these troubling things that they're saying generally about constitutional change and prioritizing politics. There's basically yeah, this hatred fine, yeah. of independence or sort of really of the separation of powers. This idea that politicians should just be able to say what's what and the court should be able to stand in the way and, and the rules should really be able to stand in the way of that. Now he is fully in that tribe he's given them everything you can only base your predictions for the future about what has happened in the past with one guy like this and that does not look good i i, I am not saying there are ideologues that. in the cabinet yeah even well, if but, he's not one yeah, yeah. but he will be carrying the can for whatever happens and fundamentally he wants to be liked and we don't we don't know what the next cabinet is going to look like either after you know it might look different it might not it might, you know, as in this might have been a particularly right-wing cabinet to win over those people who needed to see a right-wing cabinet, and then who knows? But that that's that, that thing in the in the manifesto about the that was terrifying mm. about the changing the of constitution, the constitution. The constitution. I mean, that feels like a does that feel like a Cummings? That feels like a Cummings. It does. But it? there's still a chance. If there's a chance for us at all, it will be, you know, whenever whatever the hell happens at the end of 2020, that maybe he thinks the Brexit thing I can just put in the box and now I want to prove how one nation I am. But if I had to bet on money, I would say that he's going to be a culture warrior fucking scumbag. What really makes government work? And why do things go wrong? What's really going on in the engine room of policy? Every week in Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government, we look at who and what determines the way that we are governed. You don't just leave a pot of money on the side of the road for businesses to pick up. Maybe the new reality is minorities and coalitions and no one winning a big majority. If that's the case, we need a really serious think about how we do government and how we run parliament. You can get Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government every week on your favourite podcast app. Finally, in further final and total death of fiscal conservatism news, Boris Johnson has made an enemy of even whatever free market think tanks still like him by promising to increase state aid for struggling companies after Brexit, a policy he's hoping will win over Labour voters in the notorious red wall of industrial towns. Ian, for the last four years, the Brexiteers have been complaining about how protectionist the EU is, and now Boris Johnson is bigging up the idea of more state aid. Can he legitimately do this? Can he see that there's maybe an element of uh, contradiction here? Will we be building up walls around the country again? Well, he's already not done it, but I don't know if he knows that he hasn't. Article 10 in the Northern Ireland Protocol of the deal that he thinks is so fantastic that he came back with already has state aid provisions in it. Mm. So for any tax arrangement that affects businesses in Northern Ireland, for any arrangement you make with businesses in Northern Ireland that are trading with the EU, there are state aid arrangements in there. Secondarily, the Europeans have made clear, again, in the package that he brought back, that state aid was a condition of any trade deal with them. So his proposition is that he won't have these state aid provisions. But again, they're already in the fucking deal and they're already as a promise of what he would do for a future trade deal. Instead, he would go over to the WTO's anti-subsidy rules which are basically the same, although they have less case law because the WTO stuff works sort of state to state, member to member, rather than the kind of case law that you'd have built up in the European Court of Justice. So he's basically saying, we're going to get rid of this thing, get sign up to something that's very, very similar, although only for half of us, sort of, because the other bit's going to be working on the Northern Ireland bit. Mm. And this will all then be a criteria of the deal, which is already quite hard to work out how we'd be able to negotiate it, that I would then be doing by the end of 2020 as a precondition of the EU. So you well, just look at it and you just think like, what the well, fuck are you talking about? I, th- I think you've quite accurately uh, and justifiably totally confused us there because it's a ma- it is a morass. 
But the message, the big sort of, you know, external message to the voters is, don't worry, Britain will be able to prop up its great British industries if need be after Brexit. I don't even think that works because I, I don't I don't think that enough work has been done telling voters what the words state aid means. If you'd done, if you'd had years behind it of saying, we'll be able to invest in our industries, then I think that would be a different kettle of fish. And you'd actually be able to convince people that this would be a change and it might be effective. To come out now and in one day of 24 hours of news cycle, go state aid, state aid. Who are you really going to get over? And there's like a few Lexiters and are they really going to go? It's weird because that is a Lexit argument. Hmm. Isn't it that the Tories yeah, just yeah, haven't yeah, yeah. touched before? It's like about I would have thought there's about fifteen thousand people on Twitter who talk about state aid. With well, some familiarity. Fair, it's like, who the I've, fuck not, else is I've there? not seen any Tories talking about in quotes state aid. What they've talked about is backing British business and particularly new procurement rules, which means you've got to buy British. If you're a government organisation or if you're a your local authority, you've mm-hmm. got to you'll be biased towards buying British. Which, in my limited understanding of this flies in the face of WTO rules, doesn't it? You just mentioned them. You know, we, he's, he's saying we're going to uh, come out from um, the tyranny of the EU, thereby enabling us to support our own industries, both, um, you know, you know, by rewriting procurement rules and being able to, you know, prop them up with investments. And uh, in order to do that, we're going to go on to the WTO rules that prevent the very same. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit easier. And also, you'd, I mean, the other advantage is you have more of a say, right? What the EU are you asking for in their trade deal is sign up to our state aid rules that we adjudicate on. You know, it's an EU yeah. rule, right? So the European Court of Justice decides on it. But you're not going to have a say. Whereas in the WTO, you're, you're at least in it as an independent sort of member. So there is a distinction there. But the rules are pretty similar, really. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not against this. No, there's no like, reason. I don't think that's, I don't, you know, I never bought the kind of legs argument that, you know, we should leave the European Union in, you know, because of state aid rules. But if you're going to leave the European Union, I've got no objection to... Might as well make the best of it. ...to to sort of giving more state aid. And when the people who are angry about it at the Institute of Economic Affairs and the Adam Smith Institute and all the people that thought that Britain was going to be Singapore on Thames, (laughs) you're just like, oh, okay then. But but I don't know if it's going to reach anybody. There's a left-wing flip side to that as well, though, which is that it forces you to reveal the kind of subsidies that we pay out to great big multinationals when they just go swanning around the world basically asking for this and asking for that in order to be able to, to build a factory and then go off again so on that there is also there's also a left-wing case for state aid rules which admittedly is not something that they mention very much mm. um so i mean i don't i mean but it's also if they're going to have a left-wing case against it, it it would be helpful if if someone in the fucking lexa group would show me which jeremy corbyn policy he is unable to do because of state aid rules. Oh, right, they yeah, sort yeah. of never fucking done it. And you're just like, this is just not a major infringement on our ability to deliver a social democratic country as the Swedes and the Norwegians have been showing for a very long period of time. It's just not a problem. I predicted Bonanza for exciting hacker companies run by American immigrants with long flowing blonde hair. I think that's the kind of state aid we can afford to. I think they're going to make out like gangbusters, those guys. <laughs> I really do think wheelbarrows full of money will be delivered. By our next prime minister, there, there is a small lesson here, which is basically that for for one day's worth of news cycle, for something that probably wouldn't do much political good, he has massively complicated the negotiations that he's going to have with the EU over mm. the next twelve months. And so, once again, you get that very short term, nebulous achievement in exchange for long term, really quite significant derailment. Do you think that in in one of the many ways in which the twenty seventeen election has kind of confused our analysis of twenty nineteen? was the fact that in 2017, there really was one policy 
which caused a massive problem for the Tories. Hmm. And really, not single-handedly, but really did help change the direction of the, of the election. Um, and that Labour were clearly hoping that they would come up with one of those policies, which has really changed things. And maybe Johnson thinks that this one policy is going to make the difference in the red wall, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a week and a bit before the election. But it doesn't seem to me that there's any, that anybody has offered one policy, apart from on Brexit, that seems to have, um, that seems to have kind of moved the needle much at all. In any way. No, no yeah. there's nothing like the dementia tax that everyone's talking about. Mm. How much of what people are talking about, either Labour or Tories, do you actually think, are you really thinking, well, that's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. Like, I definitely remember there were certain elections, if something was on a manifesto and you just go, right, okay, well, that's, it's really going to happen. It's definitely going to happen this time. Um, and now there just seems loads of stuff where it's like, I suppose on some level, I'm not taking any of it sort of seriously as like, that, that that's actually mm-hmm. going to take place. Mm. It just, everything just seems like it's being just said for now. Yeah. But is that, I don't know, is that just a this horrible is the kind of bit of cynicism? Would, no, I think it's, I think it's, it's actually about modern campaigns. Th- here's a whole load of stuff that's the kind of thing we'd like to do. So vote us in and we'll do stuff that's a bit like that, but it actually may be totally different. We're approaching the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit time capsule, our ever-expanding list of all the things we'll dig up and hold close like a teddy bear if we ever leave the EU. Last week, Alex put the time capsule itself into the time capsule, like that episode of Doctor Who where the TARDIS materialised inside the TARDIS. Dorian, you're always the presenter on the show. You never get to choose something for yeah. the time capsule, so it's your turn. What's hey. going in? Well, I'm going to retcon Alex's decision. <laughs> and it turns out that didn't actually happen. Was it a dream or an that imaginary a, episode? It was like a... Parallel dimension. The current chapter didn't really go inside the time capsule. It was a what if. It was a what if episode. Um, I'm just going to put sort of faith in the BBC um, <laughs> because they've obviously made some snafus. Um, and there are obviously criticisms to be made regarding inherent bias, uh, you know, towards the towards the government of, of whichever party or particular ways that certain people have behaved. But the I've been really dismayed, I suppose, by the general consensus that I see on Twitter. Twitter is not, thankfully, the whole world. But um, that the bias, it's not just like there are kind of unthinking biases or there are kind of like um, process issues that should be really be looked at. I mm. don't just publish whatever Dominic Cummings tells you. Um, and they've turned that into they are actively in certain presenters. And we know which ones people are talking about. Um, are basically sort of actively working for the Conservative Party. And that changes things. That that And that really means, and there's a lot of people, and quite normal people, saying, you know, defund the BBC, why don't pay the licence fee? I used to love it, it used to be, you know, so important. Um, and, and now I just don't trust it anymore. And it's not as if the BBC has behaved flawlessly, but I do think it's one of those things which is going to have a, be a real long-term problem Mm -hmm. because if there's one thing you're talking in the kind of era of like disinformation and fake news and social media um, you do need a kind of fairly objective reliable source and the BBC is the best that we have flawed though it is and if you just sort of abandon that um, and it's not just people who go into squawk bots and the canary saying this it's like you know people kind of in this think very similarly to me and they're just so angry with the BBC, and I'm just hoping that it is going to be maybe sort of calmed down after the election. 
because I think that if there is a general loss of faith in their ability to at least try and tell the truth and try and represent an accurate picture as best they can, then much greater problems uh, for us down the line. Yeah, I think it's fear more than it is internal dynamics. I think it's genuine fear um, in the BBC <clears throat> to be caught out doing what is supposedly unfair and supposedly. Now that the notion of objectivity has been so effectively undermined, when you are being objective, somebody somewhere can turn around and point out how you're being biased against them. Yeah, but then I don't think it's just fear. I think it's just basically that the scrutiny is so much now. It's a self-perpetuating thing is that the more people distrust the BBC, the more a little thing, like just a hasty edit that someone's trying to bosh together yeah. for, for a lunchtime show or somebody uses accidentally uses the wrong clip. These things, even though yeah. individually they don't really prove anything, they do create this kind of general impression of just like, well, you know, there was this case and this case and that case. And so every mistake, imagine being, a, you know, we don't make mistakes in Romaniacs, but most <laughs> humans do. And, you know, it's, it's a terrifying thing where basically yeah. every mistake you make is going to be seen as evidence of some kind of Bias. sinister agenda. Yeah. I blame the Russians. I also, I also blame the Russians. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Oborn, special guest on Romaniacs. I'm afraid there's no time for a foreign language clip this week, but we could use your howls into the Yes, there is. Yes, is Hello, message. this is your friend from Russia. <laughs> going to be Break, Brexit, very good. Think again. Yes, you are standing on your knees. Uh, if you'd like to send in a message, please do record something nice and short on your phone and email it to us at info at romaniacs.com and we will use the best ones. And that's it for this week. Thank you to Ian and Ingrid and Dorian for this uh, guest-free edition. Now it's time for our theme tune, Demonism Monster by Corner Shop. Visit ampleplay.co.uk for a free download of this track and to find out about their new album, England is a Garden, out in March 2020. By which time all of England will be a garden, of course. And it's time to thank our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to Neil Payne, James Cotter, Ben Bartolf, Wendy Martin, Owen Roberts, Claire Hyam and Sanjay Naya. Thanks, hello and early Merry Christmas from me to Jacqueline Edwards, Shane Fleming, Derek Malone, Matthew Roper, Kate Gard and Frixos Kimonis. Many thanks from me to Bill Nugent, Jonathan Taylor, Andrew Wilson, Sam Asplin, Chris Dornan and Natasha Broke. And thanks from me to Ian Waters, Dan Alderman, Hugh Matheson, Chris Wincop, Tess McMahon, Simon Besant, Alaric Green, Sandrine Tiller and Lewis Brown. And finally, it's me, Alex Reese, producer and Welsh person, to thank the Patreon backer with the name nobody else can pronounce. I'm about to let the side down. And they couldn't fit the rest of it on the form. Thanks! Romaniacs was presented and produced by Andrew Harrison with Ian Dunt, Dorian Linsky and Ingrid Oliver. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.